What I'd like to do is start a series on just going through the major concepts in the book that I wrote called The Fifth Way. The book has just been re-released. I wrote it, the original version, about seven years ago. And three years ago, it won the National Christian Writers Association Award for nonfiction. But the first thing that they said was, it's way too long. So I've, uh, in and between the raindrops over the last couple of years, condensed it down, rewritten it, and just re-released it a few weeks ago, whatever. And so I thought this would be a great time to kind of go through the principles. Because what the fifth way is about, and it's subtitled The Western Journey to the Hebrew Heart of Jesus, it's just that. The book is about a journey to the journey. We all talk about the journey, our spiritual journey. We talk about the way of Jesus. But what I found 25, starting 25 years ago when I was trying to get my head wrapped around what Christianity was, and more importantly, what it wasn't, and how I was supposed to experience it, what I found was that it was incomprehensible to me. Jesus was incomprehensible to me. I was reading the scriptures for the first time because growing up Catholic, we didn't really read the scriptures. We heard them in the liturgy, but we didn't study them. So now for the first time in my early 30s, I'm studying these scriptures and trying to understand them, and they're just completely opaque. You know, I couldn't get through. And so I figured that I would be able to understand things best and most clearly at the beginning of things. So I started a study of the origins of Christianity, which led me to the Hebrew roots of Christianity. And that was the key to understand that Christianity was Hebrew in its origins, that the thought forms and the words that Jesus spoke were Hebrew in their origins, changed everything about the way of approaching this book that we held so sacred and yet seemed to know so little about. Moving from there, I met a Jesus that I had never met before, a Jesus that I knew that I could follow for the rest of my life because this Jesus spoke without contradiction. This Jesus spoke always in a direction that pointed toward what he called good news, but what I came to understand as a blessed assurance the actual experience of a love and a connection and acceptance, a place at the table that I could never lose because I couldn't gain. And that changed everything in my life. The book is about that journey. What I found I had to go through as a modern Western American Christian to be able to start to just sit at the feet of this Jesus was nothing short of a mind-bending, inside-out journey in and of itself just to get to the point that I could start the journey with Jesus. So I suppose because we are not in the culture hearing those words from Jesus' lips, it's, it's more difficult for us now to make that journey to that place so we can begin to understand. And what I found was that no major word of our theology, no major word that we use to describe our faith uh, could be taken at face value. At best, it just had different nuances. At worst, it had completely different understandings and contextual meanings. And this journey has informed my walk and my way of living life and transformed the way that I go about living. And so the first thing that I think that we need to do whenever we're trying to approach something this big is to try to pull out, you know, get that 30,000 foot view. What is it that we're really dealing with here? What is the basic attitude toward life? What is the basic way that we're supposed to approach our faith and approach our God? You know, when Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount, those three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is basically everything that he has to say, all of his teaching 
are contained in those three chapters. If you can get that, you get the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Gospels. It's like the Rosetta Stone. It's like the decoder key. Get those concepts and those principles, and everything else becomes comprehensible. And he begins the Sermon on the Mount, with a picture of the finished product. We call them the Beatitudes. But basically what he's doing, he's giving us this picture. What does it look like to be someone who lives in kingdom? And kingdom is his metaphor. Kingdom is his framework, his scaffolding, upon which all of his teaching hangs. So if we can understand what kingdom is, then we'll understand how we live in this dynamic relationship with our God. Kingdom being the here-now, awareness of God's presence, and the attitude and the dynamics of relationship that flow out of that. So if we can get that, we can get it all. And Jesus gives us this picture of the finished product. And so I thought that, obviously, in a book about this journey that is so all-encompassing, there should be a picture of a finished product. In the first chapter, what I did was to go back to a time... And at the time that I first wrote the book, it wasn't that far in the past, uh, about a very profound moment in my life. And I want to just tell you that story. I was uh, 10 years into my journey at this point, and it was, um, I was in my early 30s, and I was already had gone through about eight years of preparation for ordination as a pastor. And I was coming up to my ordination. I was within a month of ordination. And I was going to uh, deliver my first sermon on ordination day. So I was really amped up and really excited about that, really nervous about it. I had been preparing for months for this, this message, right? And, you know, <laughs> a new pastor, someone who is just getting feet wet, thinks that, yeah, you can have one message that's just going to change everybody's lives, you know? And I had to say it all in this one message, and I had to get it all done. And I was really thinking that I could do this. I could make this happen. And so I was working on this thing and practicing it and all of that. At the same time, I had a friend. His name was Lou Sauer, and he was in his mid-80s. He had diabetes, and he had been a man that I had gotten to know over the past few years. He was always wheeling, wheeled in on a Sunday morning in his wheelchair. He had a way, though, of turning around in that chair and looking right at you and smiling with a smile that just seemed to split his face into two halves. He had this big gap between his two front teeth and glasses, thick glasses, and he would smile at you like you were the only person in the room the only person in his life. He had that ability to cut right through. And when he looked at you, it was like in those movies where everything just kind of fades to white and there's just that, that tunnel between you and this thing, in this case, Lou's face. And it just struck me, how could he do that? How did he do that? Why were there so few people who could do that or did do that? And I wanted to know more about him, and I started talking to him on Sundays. And then I started visiting him at the convalescent home where he was staying because the diabetes had gotten so bad he couldn't stay. He lived in a mobile home park with his wife, and he had to go to the convalescent home. started visiting him over there and spending several hours talking to him. And what I found out about Lou was that everything that you saw on the surface, everything you saw in that smile, went all the way to the bone. There was nothing, as you chipped away layers, as you got to know him better, there was nothing that you saw that was any different. He was completely integrated in that way. The diabetes was getting worse and worse, the dialysis, and he finally just said, no more. You know, just don't want to do this anymore. It's just not worth it. So he stopped the dialysis, and so we all knew that it was only a matter of time. Almost exactly two weeks before my scheduled ordination, 
Marion and I went to visit him at the hospital because now he's in the hospital. And uh, we kind of stepped around the curtains and there was Lou lying in his bed and you know, had the hospital gown on, but it was kind of pulled up on one leg and the covers were askew and there were big dark patches of blood you know, that were right underneath the skin on his legs and on his arms and, and he looked like he'd lost a lot of weight. He looked, he looked pretty bad and we were just kind of shocked at his appearance, hadn't seen him you know, in a couple of weeks. But he was completely unfazed. He just broke into that smile and there it was again. He and we were the only ones in the whole world at that moment. We sat down, Marion and I, and we're talking to him. And, you know, we're just talking about stuff. You know, he loved USC. We talked about that and we talked about this and that. You know, we talked about a lot of superficial things because the big thing that was the elephant in the room was hard for us to put into words. After a little while, it was obvious he was tired and he needed to to get some rest. And so we prepared to leave and we're starting to say our goodbyes. And as we were starting to get up, he grabbed both of our hands and we sat back down again and he just looked into our eyes and he said, love each other. Just love each other. And then he paused for a beat and he said, and kid around a little. And we parted, we said goodbye and three days later he was dead. And I never got to speak with him again. I continued preparing for my message, but what Lou had said to us stuck in the back of my mind, and I couldn't get it out of my head, and it kept spinning and spinning over the next few days. And what I started to realize was that what Lou had said in only 12 words, love each other, just love each other, and kid around a little, was everything that I was trying to say in this great sermon that I was preparing, you know? And he'd said it in 12 words. How do you do that? How do you get to the point in your life where you can sum up everything that the gospel is about, everything that your life is about in 80 plus years in 12 words? That takes some doing. And I realized that all my words didn't mean anything anymore. And I stopped and just threw everything out. And the message that I delivered that morning of my ordination was the gospel according to Lou. Because that's what I felt it was. Chapter 1, verse 1, love each other, just love each other. Chapter 1, verse 2, and kid around a little bit. I remember when I said that that morning, the gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, verse 1, immediately this woman in the front row, oops, open her Bible, ruffling the pages. <laughs> you know, maybe she thought I said Luke. Otherwise, you know, it was just the programming. You know, we say gospel according to Luke, and everybody's looking in their Bibles. I just thought it was so funny, you know. But he had this way, and he had honed it down over all his years. He had gotten to the point, and I call it the smile point. He got to the point where his love was no longer just a decision that he made because he was trying to obey, because of ethical reasons, because it was the right thing to do, because he was following Jesus. It had nothing to do with obedience anymore. He had gotten to the point that this is who he was. There was no better way to live his life. And he loved people and he loved connections so much that it just came out of him. Love might be a decision, we say that, but our kidding around with each other is the proof that we like the decision that we made. You get that? All that can ever be transferred from one person to another are the choices that we make based on what it is that's inside. Love isn't transferred directly. It's transferred through the choices. And when the choices include that smile, then we realize that we are now in love with life. We're not just trying to love. In other words, we are transformed. 
And the difference between living a life from the outside in, conforming to what we think we're supposed to do, and living it from the inside out, transforming and becoming something completely different, is everything. The centrality of transformation in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the red letters of Jesus' words, is everything. It's all about transformation. And so the question then becomes, how do we get to transformation? What is it that we're really talking about here? Jesus tries to illustrate it in the Beatitudes. This is what it looks like. These are the traits. Gentle in spirit, poor in spirit, gentle. Poor in spirit means humble. Gentle, mourning. That means you can enter into another person's pain. You can feel things deeply yourself. That you hunger and thirst after righteousness. That your heart is pure and undiverted. All of these qualities point to the same type of person that Lou was, that I had gotten to know that Lou was. Lou's love was different. It was different in its quality. It was different in the way that it came across to me. And I wanted to read you a couple of paragraphs from this chapter, see if I can bring this home to you. Lou loved us and loved to kid around with us. His love was the way he had decided to live his life, but his kidding around was the way we knew we were loved. His playfulness made his love real, not the love itself, because love is never transferred directly. The effect love has on our choices is all that can ever be felt by another. We often say that love is a decision, and so it is in part. Love may have been Lou's decision, but his kidding around was the proof that he actually liked the decision he made, that his decision had transformed him from someone who practiced love to someone who had fallen deeply in love. Lou was transformed, and that made all the difference. The writings we hold sacred in Judeo-Christian scripture gives us image after image of the centrality of transformation, from being born again to drinking living water to becoming like little children. They all point in the same direction, radical change. All we may do in the name of God, however well-meaning, is meaningless without true transformation that changes us from the inside out and makes the experience of our lives radically different. Without transformation, love remains a decision and lots of hard work. Be ye transformed and love becomes play. Thoreau wrote that most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. What is it about the gospel, the good news, that isn't good enough anymore to actually transform our lives from being characterized by fear to being characterized by contentment? And from there to being able to play at love. What did Lou know that we don't? Was there some wonderful joke God told him that kept him smiling and laughing every time he recalled the punchline? I think so. I think God kept Lou laughing because Lou had finally seen God as God is. Lou couldn't tell us the joke. He had to be there. But we could see it written on his face and in his life and in his gospel. But is Lou's gospel consistent with the other four? And I think that's the question for us. Is Lou really a picture of the finished product of someone living in kingdom as Jesus taught it? Is Lou a model for us as we go forward? Is Lou's attitude toward life the way that we are supposed to live our lives and understand our relationship with Jesus, with our Father in heaven. In other words, I suppose what we're asking is, what is the nature of Jesus? Is his nature consistent with what I've just been characterizing in Lou? 
So how do we do that? How do we know what Jesus' nature is? Well, we're going to have to go with the scriptures, right? We have to start there. We're going to try to figure this thing out from that point of view. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus wept twice. We know that. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over his friend Lazarus' death. But did you know, and this is kind of strange, the word, the word smile never appears in the New Testament. In fact, I couldn't find the word smile. Only, I could only find it once in the Old Testament, and that was rhetorically in a psalm. The word laugh appears twice in the New Testament, both times used rhetorically in Luke's Gospel at chapter 6. But never in terms of someone laughing, never in, used in terms of someone smiling. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think that is? Does that mean nobody ever smiled? You know, you have whole Christian denominations who believe if it's not in the Bible, if it's not in Scripture, then it doesn't exist and it should not be practiced. Such churches don't have instrumental worship because that's not in the Bible, so they don't do it. Well, smiling's not in the Bible. Should we not be doing it? It's an interesting concept, isn't it? See, there's a, if you're studying hermeneutics, which is the, the science and the art of interpretation, what you realize is when something was commonly known to the people of a given place or time, they don't put it into the text. They don't need to. It's commonly known. You have to understand that the people were writing, who wrote the scriptures, they were writing for the people that were right in front of them. They weren't writing for us 2,000 years later. They weren't thinking about that. So if something was commonly known, then they didn't put it in. To say Jesus wept twice is big news because the rest of the time he was laughing and smiling. How do we know that? How can we be sure? Well, we got some clues Jesus always held a child up as the epitome of kingdom. Have you ever watched children playing in a playground? Now look at yourself at work. Is there a difference? Why would Jesus hold up that image? When his handlers tried to keep the children away from him, he berated them, let the children come to me. And we have to resist this image that we have of Jesus because we are so busy seeing him as God that we forget to see him as a man in love with life and in love with the people around him. And so we always picture him standing ramrod straight and dignified, speaking King James English and staring heavenward. And so when he is interacting with the child, we see him as putting the child neatly on his knee and patting it on the head, maybe talking to it beatifically. Are you kidding me? He would have been on the ground, on all fours, giving piggyback rides and horseback rides, and they're pulling his beard and they're squealing and laughing and crawling all over him, undignified. You bet. But this is Jesus' power. His ability to be undignified. His ability to strip down and wash his disciples' feet. The humility, the groundedness, the connection point. I believe Jesus was the first guy in the pool, always running ahead, urging everybody on, come on, this is going to be so much fun. You know, consider the birds and the lilies of the field. Peter, look at that bird! How do you picture Jesus? How many times have I heard, especially on Tuesday nights, when people come in here burned and broken and in the middle of their addiction and they see that picture hanging right there of that laughing Jesus, that smiling Jesus, or the other one that's around the corner that some, maybe some of you can see, but I put in the bulletin of this belly laughing Jesus. They are shocked because they've never seen Jesus depicted that way. How sad is that? Who is Jesus? He is a man completely in love with life. He blew people away. He had authority in his words because people saw him 
as a man that they could relate to, always with an arm draped around someone's shoulders, bringing them in, sitting at table. He was called a drunken, a drunkard and a glutton because he enjoyed life. He celebrated life. He moved in. We have to understand this is who Jesus was. He's making these equations. So intent as we are on Jesus as God, we can't miss his humanity and the way that he would have lived his life if he wasn't a hypocrite. If he told us that this was kingdom, if he told us these are the attributes that took us in and he didn't do it himself, that would make him a hypocrite. And the truth of the matter is, if he spoke with authority, all we have is what we All we can give is what we have inside to give. And he was giving this all the time. So this question, what really is the finished product of kingdom? What does kingdom look like? Well, then that depends on what God is like, what God looks like, what his attributes are. And then if we are created in his image, then what should we look like? How do we know what God looks like? How are we going to do that? Well, Scripture, again, is our key, but Scripture is difficult here because it seems contradictory. We're getting different facets of God that seem to contradict. He's an angry God. He's a loving God. And this has fueled all sorts of controversy. And it seems as though Christianity, for most of its 2,000-year history, has fallen down and accepted the image of an angry God as its primary metaphor, as its primary way of looking at God and dealing with God, this angry God. There was a famous sermon that was delivered in the 18th century by a pastor by the name of um, Jonathan Edwards, and it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I want to read you just a couple of paragraphs of this, because this defined a whole generation at that time. uh, 1741, it was delivered in Connecticut. Just hear a little bit of this. He's thundering from his pulpit. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, as heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with a great weight and pressure towards hell. There the black clouds of God's wrath are now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. He's just getting warmed up. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow is made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He has a purer eyes than than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. 
and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. And then lastly, it's an everlasting wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God for one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will, be absolutely, you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. How's your morning now? Now, we listen to something like this and we say, but this is so archaic, almost to the point of being ridiculous. And yet, from the earliest times in Christianity, and maybe because Christianity was formed in the fires of persecution and the martyrs were revered and idealized, that the idea of suffering became part and parcel to what the Christian life was all about. But from its earliest centuries into the medieval Western Europe from which we come, there was a sense that suffering and the idea that the pleasures of life were not to be enjoyed, that to come closer to Christ was to stay in that place of suffering, to keep yourself away. Celibacy was seen as a higher state than matrimony. To keep yourself away from rich foods and everything was another way of of maintaining your spirituality. And the Puritans took this ethic across the Atlantic to the United States, and the Puritan ethic has informed us for the last 200 years. And so you see something like this in Jonathan Edwards in 1741, and you think, yeah, but that was then and this is now. But you know, the apple hasn't fallen that far from the tree. I had a friend send me an article that was about Rob Bell. And if you don't know Rob Bell, he's a a Christian teacher, but he's pretty liberal. He had a book a few years ago called Love Wins. He's accused of being a, a universalist or in, you know, believes in universal reconciliation, which means that uh, there really is no hell, that God's love is going to prevail and everyone will be reconciled to him. He doesn't actually say that, but he gets pretty darn close. He had a tour a, a year or two ago called The Gods Aren't Angry. He was trying to portray a God and a relationship with God that was completely different than Jonathan Edwards, of course. But I want to read you just a little bit of what this article had to say. He, Bell, Bell, walked around an altar for 90 minutes without taking... I'm messing this up. He walked around an altar for 90 minutes without talking about the wrath of God against sin being poured out on Christ. He did not say, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He did not say, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Instead, he said, Anytime someone makes you feel guilty about how you are living... That is part of the old system, the pre-Christ system. He did not say he's a universalist. Instead, he just said, the only Christian ritual is to help you tap into the peace that God has already made with this, with this world. He, not, he did not tell them, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Instead, he said, the gods are not angry anymore. And so this person is critiquing He was there listening to Rob Bell for his 90-minute talk and uses these words to critique him. And I'm not here to agree with Rob Bell or to critique Rob Bell. That's not the point at all. I'm looking at the response to Rob Bell, the response to a picture of God that is markedly different than what we have been going through in terms of Western Christianity especially. 
This line, especially, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow. It's a terrifying thing. Was it a terrifying thing to fall into Jesus' presence? See, we've we got to start to take a look at if we wouldn't phrase things this way, if you hear this and you say, well, that can't be God, but you know what? There are subconscious drives and remembered attitudes or unremembered attitudes that are also driving us to see God in that way. God is an angry God. But are we supposed to approach God with fear and trembling? Are we supposed to fear the Lord? Yes, but we need to understand that those are idiomatic phrases that mean to approach God with humility and with respect with reverence, with awe. That the fear of the Lord is not to be afraid of the Lord. Oh, but yeah, but doesn't the Old Testament talk about an angry, wrathful God? Yes, it does. And I don't have time to develop this fully today because it involves the way that we interpret Scripture and the way that we look at Scripture. But I can tell you this, that we on some level know that the writers of Scripture were writing about God from the point of view of their own experience. There are parts of Scripture that definitely give us God's attributes. We know those. He is unchanging. He is everlasting. He never leaves or forsakes us. Those are unchanging actual attributes of God. And then there are those that come from the experience of being in relationship with God over time. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus echoes that on the cross. But we know that the attribute of God is that he never leaves us or forsakes us. So what's going on here? Where is the contradiction? It's that the writers are writing about the way that it feels in their life from time to time. It feels as though God has left, feels that he's forsaken, feels like he's angry, feels like he's chastising. All those things are the responses of God. We need to be able to see the thread, the unbroken thread of the unchanging God through that. And read. Does God need to be angry? Is that really what's going on? And how can we know if God is an angry God? How can we tell? Well, Jesus gave us a way to do that too. Thank you, Jesus. Take a look at these, these uh, citations from John, starting at John 14. John 14, 8 through 10. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, how have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? You can see his frustration showing through 2,000 years in this tight little concise retelling of the story. You still have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am with the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my, of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. I'm going to quickly read the rest because he's hammering this over and over. John 5:19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. John 12:44 And Jesus cried out and said, "He who believes in me does not believe in me but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me." Skipping down to verse 49, "For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life, therefore the things I speak I speak 
just as the Father has told me. John 8, so Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me, and He who and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Jesus couldn't be more specific. He couldn't be more adamant. He couldn't be more on point. He and the Father are one. No daylight between them. If you have seen him, you've seen the Father. And so we don't need to see the Father We just need to see Jesus, but we need to really see Jesus and understand how it was that he lived life. What was the way that he looked at his relationship with his father? We know he called it good news. You know, was Jesus angry? Did Jesus process his relationships with anger, even if he was in the righteous position as opposed to the other? When the woman is brought to Jesus in adultery, does he allow her to be stoned? Does he speak harshly to her? How does he deal with her? He just doodles in the sand, doodles in the dust. And he asks the men who are standing there with the rocks if they have the authority to stone her. You who is without sin cast the first stone. And as they peel away and he is left alone with her, where are your accusers? They're not here. Neither do I accuse you. Neither do I condemn you. He tells her to go and sin no more. Of course. Go and stop doing the things that keep you separated, keep you in this living hell, keep you away from the relationships that are going to bring you into God's presence, into God's kingdom. Of course he tells her that. He doesn't have to be angry. Oh, but he cleansed the temple. He got angry there. Yeah. But what was he angry at? The people or the institution that was, again, separating the people from God's presence. Jesus did everything he could to tear down anything that would stand between a person and the absolute presence of their Father in heaven. Was he angry? I'm sure he could get angry, but he wasn't characterized by anger. He didn't deal with the people in his life with anger. It was different. He understood the trauma that creates sinful behavior. He understood the vulnerability that creates it. And when he said, go and sin no more, it was really an expression of infinite patience that he had with everybody with whom he was working. If we see Jesus, we can see the Father. Do we get angry at a two-year-old because they have to wet their diapers and they can't use the toilet? We understand they are not capable physically of doing that. And so we work with them. And we correct them, and we work through until they are capable. Jesus works with us in the same way. And he says, I and the Father are one. Does there need to be an angry God? You'll have to decide how you want to relate to your God. I'm not going to tell you how to do that. But what I want to do is to try to get you to look at things maybe in a different way. Because how much can we trust an angry God? How will we work anything beyond just conformance, obedience, if we're dealing with an angry God? And will we be be able to get to the place of transformance where we actually have to risk something and see if it is so in our relationship with God? Things change when we do that. 
This call to oneness is not just limited to Jesus and his Father, because look at John 17, and the whole chapter reads this way, but this one line, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And that word name there, Shem, in Aramaic, means essence, character, reputation. And so that is even another way of saying oneness. To be in the Father's name, to pray in Jesus' name, means to pray in oneness, as if our essence, everything that we're about, is the same thing that they're about. It's the same way of saying it, just another way of saying it. If we are one with Jesus, then we are one with the Father as well. When we have been transformed from the inside out so that everything that we're about and our greatest pleasure is the same as God's, when we're no longer obeying, but just being who we are, now we have achieved what we set out to be, which is created in God's image. We're now living that. So I guess the next question would be, what's God's image? Take a look at uh, 1 John 4 to 8, 4, 8, I should say. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. What is this image? What is this essential characteristic of God? John says, God is love. If you don't know love, then you can't know God. Well, then what is love? Paul comes to the rescue here at 1 Corinthians 13. Famous verse. I'm sure you've all heard it. If at a, not at a wedding, then someplace else. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But God is love. So what we should be able to do if God equals love is read this again and put God in there. God is patient. God is kind and is not jealous. God does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. God does not seek his own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God never fails. And if Jesus is one with the Father, then we can do the same thing. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind and is not jealous. Jesus does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. Jesus does not seek his own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. And when we become one with Jesus, we are patient. We are kind and not jealous. We do not brag and are not arrogant. We do not act unbecomingly, do not seek our own. We are not provoked, do not take into account a wrong suffered. We do not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice with the truth. We bear all things, believe all things hope all things, endure all things, and we never fail. Is that true? Is that possible? Can it be that simple? These are the questions that we need to be asking. 
This is where it all comes down right to ground. If we can't answer these questions for ourselves, how in the world are we going to proceed along this way? If we don't have a clear idea of who this father is, then we're not going to have any idea of how we're supposed to approach him, what the shape of this way really is. We need to know what the picture of the finished product looks like. And this is a first step. If we can't get past this step, it's not ever going to be able for us to enter this kingdom that, that Jesus is talking about. It needs to reflect our basic attitude toward life, this idea that we have. And when we know the truth, when we know who our Father really is, when we can see that the news really is good, then we can laugh in all of our circumstances. We can be content in all of our circumstances. We can live our love as Jesus and Lou lived theirs in their relationships. Love each other. Just love each other and kid around a little. When we do experience this good news, then we can fall truly in love with life and we can become transformed with all that that means. Born again, drinking the living water, all of that comes to us. So beyond just deciding to love, grinding it out in fear of an angry God, we start to actually learn to like the decision that we made. And the difference is everything. The difference is kingdom. And there's Jesus with that big grin on his face, just waiting to take us home whenever we're ready to finally accept that it really is that simple, that difficult, but that simple. Let's pray. Who are you, Lord? Help us to be able to answer that question to our own spirit's satisfaction. Help us to be able to rest knowing that we know you, knowing that we have experienced who you really are. We need that more than we can ever possibly know. Help us to accomplish it bit by bit and day by day, just leaning into you. Stoke the fire of our desire to leave no stone unturned in establishing a relationship with you that reflects who you really are and who we really are in you. Thank you for the examples around us in my life like Lou in everyone here who have those, those people, even for just a moment, who have shown them a glimpse of your love and who you are. Help us to become people that can show that glimpse to somebody else. That's who we want to be. People who reflect you and reflect the quality and nature of your love. You are our everything, Father. We give ourselves to you once more. And we just ask that you would show us day by day more and more of what that really means. That we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.